Let me encourage you to uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians 2. As you're finding your place there, let me also thank you for your support and for your prayers as uh, we enjoyed over the last week, uh, summer conference, summer camp with our middle school group in Panama City Beach, Florida. Uh, It was an incredibly rewarding week, and I'm so very thankful uh, for uh, the time that God has given us together uh, to last week really focus on what the church is and what the church is meant to be in and through the grace of Jesus. I have several souvenirs, including a lingering exhaustion, uh, a spotty tan, and this great friendship bracelet that Paige made for me. So thank you, Paige. Uh, I'm still wearing it. Uh, Philippians uh, chapter 2 this morning, uh, we're going to continue really Paul's thought on what it looks like to be a unified, servant-hearted, humble church. Uh, Last week, Dr. Rod Mays really started uh, this focus at the end of chapter 1, where Paul talks about being unified or living life together, being of one mind and one spirit in the midst of suffering or persecution from the outside. Today, we're going to look at this idea of being unified or one-spirited people as we think about service one to another on the inside. With those things in mind, give your attention now to Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the very Word of God. Let us pray together once again. Heavenly Father, as we give our attention this morning to these verses, we are thankful because we know that you are going to work. Your Word will not return void in our hearts and in our minds. We know that it will accomplish everything that you have purposed and designed. You are going to use your word by your spirit to transform our hearts and our lives today. So, Father, I I would ask that you would strengthen me to preach from a position of humility and confidence. Strengthen us to listen to you, to hear from you from a position of expectation. Comfort us, convict us, change us. All of this we pray now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. 
If you take just a moment this morning and reflect back over your life, then you'll realize that, that every once in a while someone will say something to you. You may not even realize it at the time. But someone will say something and, and, it, and it sticks. It begins to work its way down deep into your heart. It may even change you. That happened to me several years ago in, in January of 2018. Rachel Bailey Rabin and I were attending a youth ministry training in Nashville. And during one morning session, a pastor named Joe Novenson, many of you know him, he was reflecting on 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and his, his life of ministry, and he said this, always go to the back of the line. You'll meet Jesus there. You know, when he made that statement, I, I immediately thought about how much I hated and quite frankly still hate the back of the line. For most of my growing up years, I, I attended a, a very structured Christian school. So we lined up for everything. The water fountain, lunch, recess, tri trips to the library, to the computer lab. I always wanted to be where? At the front of the line. I wanted to be the first one to eat, the first one to play, the first one to learn. So I worked to keep myself up there. You see, maybe without even knowing it, I was selfish, right? I mean, what were those moments, those little insignificant moments really all about? My satisfaction, my happiness, my personal advancement. Perhaps an even better question is not what were those moments about, but who? Who were those moments really all about? Me. You'll notice that the sermon title today is actually a little riff on Joe Novenson's statement. Today we're going to talk about gospel living at the back, the back of the line. Now, I need to be clear with you. Not everything that we're going to talk about today is going to be easy for you or for me to hear. Life at the back of the line is hard. It is unnatural, it is unfamiliar to us, and it does require real sacrifice. Life at the back of the line is actually very expensive in many ways. But life at the back of the line is also sweet and meaningful and right and fulfilling. Why? Because we meet Jesus there. The first big idea that we meet here in Philippians 2 is the foundation of life at the back of the line. Look back at verses 1 and 2 with me again. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by... Now, I know that's a little awkward to stop there, but, but we need to understand what Paul is doing. In this opening line, this, this opening phrasing of Philippians 2, Paul gives us a conditional statement. He's saying, if this thing is true, then this other thing should or must follow from it. So I stopped reading in the middle of Paul's thought because it's the if in verse 1 that actually serves as the foundation or the prerequisite, the underpinning of our lives at the back of the line. In other words, the if here actually sets the stage for the rest of the passage. 
In the original language, it's actually four ifs. If any encouragement, if any comfort, if any participation, if any affection and sympathy. Here's what God is saying to us. If you have been truly satisfied and strengthened by Jesus Christ, if today you are experiencing the peace and contentment that comes through His undying, unending, sacrificial love, if you belong to God and the fellowship of the church through the ongoing work of His Holy Spirit, if your heart has been filled with mercy and sympathy by Christ, then you will take up gospel living. And that gospel living will look like humility, sacrifice, and service. So what really is the foundation of life at the back of the line? It's knowing God. Knowing God. Now, there are a lot of really good Christian folks in this room this morning, but, but don't make assumptions. What we, what we can't do is just say, okay, knowing God, got it, check, let's move on. No, I, <laughs> we need to think about what this passage is actually saying to us. Knowing God is not the same as knowing about God. It is not having all of your categories straight. It is not just about memorizing your facts and putting them in your brain or in a book. Knowing God here is personal. It is emotional. It is revolutionary. It is transformative. Knowing God is about the very core of our identity and the center of our will being radically changed through his intimate, redemptive presence in our lives. When we know God, we find what? Encouragement in Christ. We find our comfort where? In His love. We find our welcome and our belonging, how? In His Holy Spirit. When we really know God, when we understand His character and in His work, when we live in fellowship with Him, we find rest and strength and a complete, compelling kind of compassion in Him. Ultimately, when we actually know God, we know that He is enough. He is enough. It's essential for us to really wrap our minds and our hands around this because when we know God, something marvelous and miraculous begins to actually take place in us. We begin to live life how? From satisfaction and not for satisfaction. We live from meaning and not for meaning. We live from contentment and not for contentment. From comfort, not for comfort. From belonging, not for belonging. And as a result, we move where? To the back of the line. I want you to take just a moment, and I mean this. This morning, I want you to think about the most selfish, self-centered person that you've ever met. Seriously. Who is it? This is the, <laughs> this is the person that's always at the front of the line. 
They know it, you know it. This is the man or, or woman that the comedian Brian Regan calls the me monster. It's the, this is my universe and I'm letting you live in it for now kind of guy or gal. You have somebody in mind? I bet for some of you it didn't take very long. Now first, if you weren't near the very top of your own list, that's really telling. But at, but at a more general level, I, I want us to think about what's really wrong with that person. I mean, what, what's going on with them? Why are we so selfish? Why, why do we fight our way to the front of the line? Sin is the answer, yes. But, but what has sin done to us? It has taken something away from us. Sin takes away our encouragement, our comfort, our fellowship, and our sympathy. I mean, just think about someone whose heart is controlled by greed or by lust or by personal advancement. What's going on? What's happening in the heart, in the mind, in the life of that man or woman or boy or girl? That person is choosing, maybe in a small moment, maybe day by day, to do what? to desperately seek out satisfaction from the things of this world. Those are hearts that lack comfort, hearts that lack belonging, hearts that lack satisfaction. And instead of turning to God, who gives eternal encouragement in Christ and unending fellowship to us in the Holy Spirit, we steal empty, destructive kinds of encouragement again from creation. The really bad news for us here as we work our way through Philippians 2 is that we are all takers in our fallen nature. We all push for the front of the line. We all use other people to get what we want. The reality is that we are all looking for satisfaction, but we will never, ever, ever be satisfied in this life in and of ourselves, and in those things that God has created. But let not your hearts be troubled. You see, there is something better than our petty, endless selfishness. There is real encouragement in the living Christ Jesus. There is lasting comfort in His steadfast love. There is full participation with God and with others in the Holy Spirit. There is affection and sympathy. There is knowing God, the God who loves us, welcomes us, and satisfies us. That is why Jesus can say with full confidence, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will, I will give you rest. The second big idea in this passage is the invitation, the invitation to life at the back of the line. Verses 2 through 4 again. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
I use the word invitation intentionally here because Paul is prefacing multiple commands with what should be familiar language for us in Philippians. If you've been with us for this sermon series, or if you've read through the book of Philippians more than once, then you'll know that this idea of joy is a really big deal in this epistle. In chapter 1, Paul prays for the Philippians, how? With joy. He rejoices in the proclamation and the extension of the gospel message. He rejoices in the faithful, expectant prayers of the church. Paul even anticipates greater what? Joy in the faith with the Philippians on the other side of his imprisonment. The call to obedience in verses 2 through 4 isn't just about following all of the rules or doing the right thing. You see, Paul loves the people of this church. Their gospel obedience will do what? It will fulfill his God-given joy as their friend and as their father in the faith. The Apostle John says it this way, I have no greater joy than knowing that my children are walking in the truth. So here in Philippi, we have a diverse group of people who know God, a group of people whose hearts and lives have been changed by God, and these same people now have the privilege and responsibility of pleasing God and Paul through obedience. That's the invitation. That's the call to them and to us in Philippians 2. But what does obedience look like in this context? Well, again, it is life at the back of the line. Verse 2 is a call or an invitation to unity. Verse 3 is primarily an invitation to humility. Verse 4 is an invitation to service. When we put all of this together, the, the calling to humility and, and unity and service, we, we realize what? That this passage is actually all about selflessness. And, and it's a comprehensive selflessness, right? Listen to some of these phrases again. Be of the same mind. That's mentioned twice in verse 2. Have the same love. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Look on the interests of others. What's going on here? What is Paul really saying? As God's people, our thinking is meant to be selfless. Our feelings and desires, our will is meant to be selfless. Our actions must be selfless. Our focus should be selfless. So every single part of our humanity should be committed to promoting the good of, not of self, but the good of other people. This is actually a, a call or invitation to community selflessness as well. Every single command in verses 2 through 4 is plural. So every single believer is called to put others first. We are all invited, every single one of us, from the youngest to the oldest, to take up our rightful place at the back of the line. I know I've said a lot about these verses generally, but I want you to look back at verse 3 with me again quickly. 
That phrase there, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, is actually really, really significant. According to one commentator, this means that God's people will not aim at, excuse me, at profit and power. They will not live to build their own reputation. You see, when, when we're at the back of the line, we don't live for money or influence or popularity. We live for the glory of God and the eternal good of others, even if it costs us something. Even ultimately if it costs us everything. Disney's movie Frozen debuted in 2013. When that movie opened in theaters, something really interesting happened. The world was captured by Princess Elsa. But you know who wouldn't be? Really, if you've seen that movie, then you know that she has amazing hair. I know, that's funny coming from me, right? It's a long-term coveting issue. I'm dealing with it. Um, So she has amazing hair and a stunning dress and perfect makeup. Nobody's eyeshadow should look that good. She has magical powers, and she gets the song. I'm not going to sing it for you this morning, but our middle school girls did give a stirring rendition on the drive to camp. Rachel has the video. Here's the problem. We fell in love with the wrong princess. It's Anna, the younger sister, who, yes, she's naive, she's more plain clothes, and perhaps at times she's easy to overlook, but she, she is the hero in Frozen. Why? Because Anna pursues Elsa even when it's dangerous. She loves her sister even when it hurts. She serves Elsa even though it's expensive. And ultimately, she saves Elsa even though it costs Anna her life. That's life at the back of the line. It is not glamorous. It is not flashy. It is costly, but it is good deeply, richly good. Why? Because we have been created by God, redeemed by God, to live not for ourselves but for other people. If you know God in Christ this morning, then this passage is inviting you. It is calling you into a life of unity and humility and service, a life of sacrificial selfishness, selflessness, a life at the back of the line, particularly toward those who are also your brothers and sisters in Christ. We could dive into any number of applications here, but for the sake of time, I want to explore just a few with you. If you were a student here this morning, maybe a high school student or, or a college student, you might need to check your priorities against Philippians 2. Living in a college town is awesome, but it's not always a good thing. Here's what I mean. You see, if you're not careful, you can start measuring your success and your worth and your meaning and your purpose by what? Your grades your popularity, your admission status, your athletic ability, 
your scholarship offers. And so you start living and working almost exclusively for who? You. You start fighting, maybe slowly at first, for the front of the line. Now, there is certainly nothing wrong with being a straight-A student. There's nothing wrong with being the class president or the one who starts for the varsity team. But if you've earned those things while ignoring the needs of other people around you, or God forbid, if you have earned those things by walking over other people, then this passage invites you to repent and believe the gospel. If you're a parent here this morning, I'm just going to keep stepping on toes while I'm at it. If you were a parent here this morning and you have allowed that behavior in your children or encouraged that kind of behavior in your children through your own activity, then God is inviting you to take the first step in modeling repentance in your home. Here in Philippians 2, Paul sees students and parents constantly sacrificing their own personal gain for the good of other people. He sees husbands and wives giving priority to the needs of their spouses. He sees a senior adult devoting her wisdom and resources to the good of coming generations. He sees elders and deacons giving up their time and energy and, yes, even their reputation for the greater good of God's people. You know, it's interesting because this passage actually creates space in our lives and in our church for correction and for commendation. Many of us have been selfish. We need to remember that the beauty and call of the gospel, we need to repent, we need to hear and heed this invitation to life at the back of the line. But I have also watched many of you serve and serve again at great cost. I was called as a pastor of this church nine years ago, July 1st. It's an anniversary I got to celebrate with our middle school students at camp. The Lord has done much good work in our midst in those nine years. Rachel and I are deeply thankful for continued work alongside you all. In those nine years, I have watched many of you spend months, years, providing around-the-clock care for a parent a spouse, or a child. Thank you. To those of you who have opened your home as a place of refuge and love for the abused and the orphaned, thank you. To the parent who has actually lost count of diapers and feedings and prayers, thank you. To the elder who has given up many nights and long hours to love this church. Thank you. To those of you who have served without ever being noticed, recognized, or seen, thank you. Thank you for living at the back of the line. Thus far, we've discussed the foundation of life at the back of the line and the invitation to life at the back of the line. The last and perhaps most important big idea we're going to look at in this passage is the illustration of life at the back of the line. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says, starting in verse 5, 
This mind which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Paul answers the why question for us here. So we already know that that living for the good of other people is unnatural, it's counterintuitive, and it is costly. So the natural question is, why would we ever live life this way? The answer? Because Jesus lived his entire life this way. Jesus always did what was best for others. Jesus lived and died at the back of the line. Unfortunately, we we really don't have time to plumb the depths of everything that's being discussed in this passage. There is a lot, a lot here about the humiliation and exaltation of Jesus. But I do want to make sure we hit the high points. First, Jesus was and is fully God. He is very God of very God, the only begotten Son of the Father, the Word, the light of the world, the Alpha and the Omega. And as such, Jesus is worthy of our worship. He is majestic and awesome and beyond our comprehension. (laughs) But what did Jesus do? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus didn't exploit or flaunt his deity. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Just just think about that. Jesus Christ, the eternal, omnipotent, second person of the Trinity, became a man. And what kind of man? He became a servant. He became a bond slave. Jesus served by humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Have you ever considered how Jesus could have come to earth? I mean, Jesus would have been well within his rights to show up in all of his glory and clean house. But Jesus chose selflessness. Jesus condescended to men of low estate. He became us. He served us. He died for us. He did nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, moment by moment, day by day, year by year, until the very end, he counted others more significant than himself. Jesus is the illustration of humility. He is the example of life at the back of the line. But you know, this passage also takes sort of an ironic turn, doesn't it, in verse 9? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, (laughs) he didn't fight for power or for place. He did not draw attention to himself. Jesus suffered and served, but what happened? 
Humiliation led to exaltation. God the Father has highly exalted Jesus Christ. So why does Paul end a discussion of humility and service and selflessness with glory? Why didn't he just stop in verse 8 with the cross? Well, first, Paul wants us to appreciate the fullness of Christ's character and work. Jesus is both the suffering servant and the King of kings and Lord of lords. But there is also a connection or application for us here. Think about the illustration or example of Jesus again. Selflessness led to blessing. Paul is giving us a reminder of God's economy. I want you to listen again to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. Matthew 25, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why is this blessing being bestowed? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Jesus served and he entrusted the Father with his blessing and exaltation. And so it must be for us. We should serve and trust our Heavenly Father to bless and to reward in his time and in any and every way that he sees fit. A servant is not greater than his master. As Christians, we are the servants of Christ, the followers of Christ. So here's the big question that we all have to answer. Are we following Jesus to the back of the line? If you are, And let me encourage you to continue on by God's grace. Pursue the humility of Christ. Emulate by the power of the Spirit from a position of love and acceptance and encouragement. Emulate the servanthood of Christ in your home, in your work. Take all that God has given you and pour it out as an offering like Christ. Leave your blessing and your exaltation in the hands of the Father. If you aren't following Jesus to the back of the line today, if your life, honestly, is really characterized by a pattern, habitual selfish thoughts and desires and actions, then I want to encourage you to take a fresh look at the cross. Look again to the fullness of what Jesus has accomplished. At the cross, you will find forgiveness. And in the cross, you will find your example in Christ. A few weeks ago, Tim introduced this series in Philippians with a jarring statement. 
The gospel is the call to give up the life of your dreams to joyfully gain the life Christ died to give you. Tim, I'm going to be honest. I didn't like you very much when you said that. Here in Philippians 2, we we have learned that Jesus died to give each and every one of his people a life of sacrifice and service. Jesus died to bring us into a position of humility and selflessness. Jesus died to put you at the back of the line. So today, brothers and sisters, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, go to the back of the line. But be encouraged. You'll meet Jesus right there. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We're thankful for your word and we're thankful for the gospel, (laughs) even when it brings us up really short. We pray that your spirit would continue to use the truths that we have learned today to bring us real conviction and real comfort in Jesus Christ. Humble us, encourage us, strengthen us, to live ultimately, God, for your own glory. And we trust to live sacrificially for the eternal good of others. We pray all of this now in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.